Let us turn to James chapter 5. It's where we're going to be this morning. If you need a Bible, go ahead and slip up your hand, and one of the volunteers will give you a Bible. That is our gift to you. So we've got one down here front. We've got them all over the place. So uh, go ahead and turn to James chapter 5, and we will be doing verses 1 through 6. I want to want to start out by just telling you um, that I hate these kinds of messages. Okay, so we'll just get that off on the right foot there. Um, I, I uh, whiteboard all my notes, and I had written in my introduction on the whiteboard, "I hate this message." And uh, Pastor Tyler went in there and uh, saw that, and he sent me a text message going, "Oh, this is going to be a good one." Uh, right off the bat, you hate it. So uh, here, here's why I hate it, and and I will mention this. Tyler is preaching in Arcadia. Uh, I'm here once a month. We're switching. I usually preach in Tempe and Arcadia. Tyler's in Arcadia this morning. Ricardo is in Tempe. And Pastor Tom is in Coronado uh, on the beach. (laughs) Doing nothing. So we're working and he's not. So I just wanted to mention that. Since he always makes me mention when he's working in Arcadia, I also want to be fair and tell you when he's not working at all. Okay, so uh, he's in, he's in Coronado. He'll be back next week. Um, I dislike these kinds of messages for a reason. One is there's a lot in here that I think we know. If you've been in church for any amount of time, and, and I think too, even if you haven't been in church and you are a rational thinking adult, um, there's a lot in these six verses you already know. Okay, so rehashing and making interesting and applicable things that may appear at first glance to be obvious is, is not an easy task. The second reason I dislike this is that it talks about, in in very harsh terms, talks about rich people. And and then whenever time, anytime we get talking about money, and especially when the when the Bible bangs on rich people, it just it's just not fun. And so um, to to make this uh, uh, come across in a way that's helpful, um, that doesn't immediately make everybody go, well, that's not me. He's not talking about me. And then just checking out for the rest of the time, uh, it, it, it's it's a challenge. It seems like the Bible uh, bangs on rich people a lot and, and elevates poor people a lot. And, and uh, people have seen that and, and kind of picked up on that theme and made some what I think are erroneous and broad generalizations uh, that the Bible does not make. So we see in, in verse 1, James starts out by saying, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. This is very encouraging right off the bat, and, and uh, it just invites you to want to read more, right, uh, as, as he starts this way. So he, here's what I want to do. I want to st- define rich, okay, and then I want to define the particular kind of rich that James is talking to. So, so those of us who need to open our ears and really hear this will do so. So biblically speaking, rich people are people who have more than they need to live, very specifically. Rich people in the Bible are, are people who have more money than they need to live, have more food than they need to live, have more clothing than they need to live. That's a rich person. The vast majority of the people in first century Palestine lived day to day to day, if not maybe week to week, um, they, they lived with very little means, often having one or maybe two sets of clothing that they would rotate they would have enough food to, to last the family maybe through the week. Okay, um, th- This was normal. So rich people were not the kind of rich people we think about. We think about rich people, we think um, they've got multiple houses, they've got lots of cars, they've got boats, they get to go on vacation in Coronado. Um, they, there are, we, we have kind of this idea of, of what a rich person is. For the Bible, it's people who have more than they need to live. Which means all of us. Okay? So um, we know the statistics. We, we, we get knocked over the head with them enough. But if you make $50,000 a year, which is not that much money in, in our context, if you make $50,000 a year, you are in the richest 1% in the world. 1%. Richest 1% in the world if you make $50,000, which is not a ton of money. Okay, if you make 30, some of you are thinking, actually 50 is a lot of money and, and I work at Starbucks and I don't make that much money. Okay, if you make $30,000 a year, you are in the top 7% in the world. The reality is that we as Americans live not only in the most prosperous nation overall in the world, 
but, but the most prosperous nation perhaps in all of human history. So when we think rich, it's, it's somewhat relative, rich and poor, experiential, where we go, well, I'm not as rich as this guy across the way who's got a bigger house and nicer cars and, 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 and all, all the stuff that comes along with that. So, so we don't think of ourselves typically as rich, but um, for anybody who's traveled the world, and, and not just right to Paris and back or to London and back, but, but really seen the world, it, it, it becomes clear very quickly how wealthy we in fact are. Okay, And so when, when James starts going, come now you rich, we need to be honest with ourselves and immediately respond by opening up our ears and go, okay, he might be talking about me. If the rest of this passage is just about rich people in general, people who have more money than they need to live, okay, which means you, your choices are not, um, uh, am, I, am I going to live tomorrow? Am I going to have food tomorrow? You're not thinking to yourself. I think very few of you are thinking to yourself now, what am I going to eat later? Well, maybe some of you are already starting to think, what am I going to eat later? Um, which I would ask that you just give me a little more time on that. Um, but very few of you are asking the question, Am I going to eat later? Do I have enough money to eat later? Do I have clothes for next week? Will I have a roof over my head next month? Very, very, very few of you are dealing with those questions. Right? Most of us have a chosen level of kind of of, of luxury or prosperity. We've said this is the lifestyle that makes sense to me. Okay, and, and all of our decisions are relative to that lifestyle, not relative to life and death. Life and death is what most of the people reading this were dealing with. Um, and, and why you see throughout the scriptures um, commands to wealthy people not to withhold the wages of laborers. Not to delay on those wages because they depended on those wages day by day by day to be able to then take those wages the next morning, go to the market, get some bread, get some rice, get some meat, get whatever they could um, for that day, depending on being paid again at the end of that day for the next day's food. Okay, so that's not our issue, typically. There may be a handful of you who are dealing with that, and I'm glad you're here. You're in the right place to be loved and cared for. But the vast majority of us are not dealing with that issue of, am I going to be able to eat tomorrow? Okay? So um, when the Bible talks about the rich, we have to at least entertain the idea that it's talking about us. Now, the Bible is not so cut and dry, not so binary as rich and poor. Right? It's, it's more nuanced than that. Um, and not only is the idea more nuanced than rich and poor, but also the, the kind of moral compass or moral uh, platform laid over this idea of rich and poor is far more nuanced than most of us will do. So um, we see in our culture um, typically two perspectives. And I, I'm going to make some broad generalizations here um, that, that some of you can check out of and just say, that ain't me, that, that doesn't apply to me. But there are some broad generalizations where rich people will look at themselves and their peers and see hardworking, smart, intelligent people who have pulled themselves up by them bootstraps. They have, they have made their money the hard way. They have worked hard. They've earned it. They, they have been smarter than everybody else. They have been wiser than everybody else. And they generally look at themselves and their peers positively. A lot of times those same rich people will look at poor people negatively. They will look at them as stupid unwise, lazy, not hardworking, not taking advantage of all the opportunities that this world has given them. And they will look at them as foolish and people that they should leverage for their own good. Now, the flip side of this is, is absolutely true as well. Poor people tend to be just as binary and they look at the rich as the oppressors, as the bad guys, as, as the ones who have been born with a silver spoon in their mouth. And they make broad generalizations about the, the rich people should give me their money. They owe me their money. And, they, and some walk around with their hands out expecting to be given money. Some poor. And they look at their peers, other poor people, as, as other people who have been oppressed by the system, other people who deserve better, other people who should be helped by the rich. And so you see these, these demonstrations like what's going on in London right now, if you guys have seen this. I mean, there, there is, there's chaos in downtown London as, as these people are, are fighting against the system and claiming that the rich owe the poor money. 
And so they're lashing out violently against these rich institutions and banks, um, accusing them of wrongfully oppressing the poor. Now, that may be true, that may, may, not be, may not be true, but there's an assumption there that poor people deserve the money of the rich. And so there, there's this kind of real clear cut and dry perspective on not only who's rich and who's poor, but kind of a moral statement laid on that. The scriptures are far more nuanced, and we see at least four broad categories. Okay, and these categories are this. We see righteous rich people and righteous poor people. We see righteous rich people in the scriptures all the time. Godly kings, godly people in power, godly wealthy people who have worked very hard, who have been good stewards of what God's given them, have been generous to the poor, have been generous to God's work, have given away, leveraged the blessing that they've been given for the sake of what God wants to see done in the world. And, and they are generous with their money. They don't defraud their employees. They don't make cheap products or bad products for their customers. Um, they do a good job. They work hard unto the glory of God, and they're very generous. God has given them gifts or blessing to be able to make a lot of money. Maybe they are highly skilled, right? Some people are gifted um, at, at making money, whether that is due to athleticism or superior intellect or just a savvy in the business world, God has given some people an ability to make a lot of money. And they've taken advantage of that and used it and stewarded it for God's purposes. Okay? There's righteous rich. There's righteous poor. There's righteous poor people who have not been blessed with those things, who do, have not grown up with the same advantages as some of the righteous rich have. But they work hard. They take care of their families. This is our blue-collar community who works very hard and is very honest and wakes up early, stays up late, loves their family, cares for their job, works hard, glorifies God, is generous with what meager things they have. We see this in the scriptures with the widow who gave her last mite. She was poor, but she was righteous. She honored God even in her poverty. She was content with what God gave her. There's righteous rich and there's righteous poor. On the flip side, there's unrighteous poor. And the, the Proverbs talk about this person, they call him the sluggard or the fool. Someone who is lazy and does not work hard, who has opportunities but doesn't take advantage of them, who follows them. I and he says hilarious things in, in the Proverbs like, um, the sluggard is so lazy and won't go outside of his house and makes up excuses like, there's a lion in the streets, and so I'm not going to go outside, I'll be eaten by a lion. Right? says that the sluggard is so lazy, he puts his spoon in the bowl but can't manage to get it back up to his mouth. Right? We know these people. We hate them. Okay? Let's just be honest about that. They drive us crazy because they've been given opportunities. They don't take advantage of them. They're lazy. They're self-involved. They won't work hard. What money they do get from the government or from other people or from churches, they waste on stuff they don't need. That's unrighteous poor. And then there's unrighteous rich, which is typically the subject of these kinds of passages. Rich people who have made their money by dishonest means, who use their money for dishonest gain, who seek to retain their money. They don't give away. They're not generous with any of their money. They treat their employees badly. They make cheap products, bad products. They don't serve their customers well. They try to hoard their money and then leverage it for their own advantage. This is the unrighteous rich that James is talking about. Okay, so as we, as we get through these six verses, I, I want you to, and I just got to ask you, you to be very honest with yourself. And there's not, I don't expect you to come up with clear categories to go, nope, I'm righteous rich or I'm unrighteous rich. There are degrees to which and moments in which you are righteous and unrighteous rich. There are moments where we are very generous and very giving and we work very hard and we have a moral standard with which we work and there are times when we are stingy and we leverage it to our own good and nobody else's good. We don't care about the kingdom of God. We don't care about the poor around us and we do injustice to our employees and the people we work with. So what, what I want is for you just to be honest with yourself. I, I, I'm not, we're not going to go show a hands at the end and go, okay, who's unrighteous rich, right? We're not going to do that, okay? As long as you stay with me. If you start nodding off, we may end up doing that, okay? So I, I just need you to be honest because, listen, if you're not honest with yourself, you'll never be honest with anyone else. You'll never make progress. You'll never admit sin. You'll never repent of sin. You'll never be saved from sin if you cannot be honest even with, in your own head and heart. Okay? So as James continues, that's what I ask, that you be honest with yourself. James 1, come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. 
Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. There's a strong eschatological kind of theme over this thing. And by that, I mean end times, end judgment, final judgment kind of ideas here, right? That he's going, listen, all this treasure you've built up. And and biblically speaking, there's basically three categories for wealth. There's um, food, right? The ability to have more food than you need for just today. Um, There's clothing, the ability to have more than one or two sets of clothing. And And there's money, gold, silver, and precious jewels, right? These are the categories we see over and over and over. When people want to honor a king, they give them food and clothing and and money, right? When they want to gain wealth, when God takes away wealth, he takes away food, clothing, and money. So what James does here, he goes, listen, all three of these main categories for wealth, I'm going to show how each of them are being destroyed. So he goes, your uh, riches have rotted, your food is rotting, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion, and then he gets into this eschatological idea, he goes, their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. And then he says, you have laid up treasure in these last days. Now, I love it when the Bible is sarcastic, because it just kind of justifies me. Um, but he, he says, you, you have laid up treasure in these last days. Now, think about the picture that he has just put together for us, okay? He, he's saying, listen, um, when you stand before God and God says, I gave you 80 years of life, I gave you these blessings, I gave you this family, I gave you these opportunities, you were born in America in one of the richest eras in all of human history, what did you do with that? And you lay before him rotten food, moth-eaten clothing, and corroded gold and silver. Just this pile of garbage that slowly is withering away. And I would imagine that in the presence of God, the rotting would move faster, the moths would eat faster, the corrosion would increase to where by the time you got done saying, this is what I have done with the life you have given me, God, it has been relegated to nothingness. And God looks down and goes, that's the treasure you've laid up? And so James somewhat sarcastically goes, wow, you guys have laid up a great treasure, rotten food, moth-eaten clothing, corroded gold and silver. Man, that's quite a find you've got there. He goes, this is how it's going to be at the last days. What, What you have yearned for, what you have labored for, what you have cared about, what you have spent 80 hours a week, week after week after week after week, building and caring for and keeping and holding on to and protecting and leveraging, all of that is slowly corroding and going away. Sweet treasure you got there. He just kind of leaves us with this vision of us standing before God with this pile of garbage in front of us going, this is what I've done, God. What do you think? How did I do, God? Illustrating the point, I think, fairly poignantly, that what we have does not last. Right? Scripture calls it a vapor. Scripture says um, that, that it will be gone, it will be destroyed, it will be stolen. Thieves break in and steal, moth and rust destroy. Right? So th- this is the treasure that we lay up on earth. This is what happens to it. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. Now, if there is ever a time, at least in my lifetime, my adult life, where we should get this most clearly and most tangibly, it is right now. As we have seen all of our equity go away, all of our money go away, all of our investments go away, all of the stock market crash, everything around us has absolutely crashed. And we should, though history teaches us that we will not learn this lesson, we should know more now than ever that this stuff goes. What's here today is gone tomorrow. What we trust in and hope in and long for will not be there tomorrow. What gave us great peace when we went to the ATM and we asked for a receipt and we saw five digits or six digits on that bank account and we breathed a little easier. We went to bed a little a little, little more secure, a little more happy. We were able to fall asleep a little faster because it had five digits, it had six digits, and now it's got three, now it's got two and it's keeping us up at night. And we're worried and we're fretting about it. I, 
at this point, we, we should know that what we long for, when, if, it's, if it's earthly treasure, if it's gold and silver and houses and cars and clothing and food, if it's those things that we long for, we have to know, at least in our heads, we have to know that it, it will not last forever, that it goes so quickly. And here's the thing, I think we do know this. And not just the Christians who've grown up hearing all this stuff all, all your life. I think that any rational human being can stop and go, well, yeah, of course it could go. Uh, of course my investments are here today and they could be gone tomorrow. I know that. So we, we tend, though, to, to respond um, in, in really one way. If, if we're going to respond negatively, we tend to respond by gripping tighter. When we find out, oh my gosh, this, this is, it's going away, it's, it's, it's fading away, it can't be dependent on, we go, well, I better protect it even more. I, I better grip it tighter or I better spend it faster because it's going to be gone. I better experience to its fullest now because I don't know if it's going to be here tomorrow. So we just spend it or we grip it tighter and tighter. Now, there's these just amazing moments um, when, when God has designed the universe um, to be an illustration about about some kind of moral truth, right? So um, I, I've been working in my backyard a lot, trying to fix it up and and, and make something of it. And and it's dirt mostly, and so I'm raking raking little leaves and dirt, and and I rake them into piles, and then I got to pick them up to put it in the wheelbarrow. And what I found is that when I pick up that pile of leaves and dirt, if I pick it up really like firmly and tightly and try to pack it in, most of it falls out. Right? You've got to kind of pick it up ginger, gingerly, a little gently, kind of help it hold together, and then put it, the, the tighter you hold it, right? So we know this for water, we know this for sand, we know this for dirt, that the tighter you hold it, the less you'll have, right? And it's just these, these really amazing little moments where, where God has made the laws of physics apply to the, law, the moral laws of nature. So that nobody can carry a great deal of water like this. The only way to carry a great deal of water or sand or dirt is like this. To, to open up our hands, to create more surface area, to, to be able to grip it as tight as we can with our hands open. The moment we go like this, we lose it. Okay, so it, it's just these amazing little moments where the laws of physics and God's moral law kind of, kind of come together in this perfect little illustration. And yet our, our constant um, desire, our constant flinch is when we think we're losing something to grip it tighter and to not let it go. And at the end of the day, it, it's, it's really just us rejecting what I, what I think we know is true about the world. What, what I think, if we are ever able to stop, put aside the emotions of loss, put aside the fear associated with it, if we could ever just stop and really think it through, I, I think we know that everything we have comes from God. Right? If, we, if we really did work the logic all the way back, because what's tangible in front of us is, is I work 10 hours a day, I get a paycheck. Right? That, that's what's tangible. And it feels like it's me working that job, earning that paycheck. Right? So, so there, there's, a, there's a kind of an experiential side of it where it just feels like, well, it's me. I'm earning this money. I got this money. It's my money. And yet when it doesn't take a lot of thinking to just kind of back that thing up and go, okay, well, yeah, I woke up this morning to do that. How, how did I wake up? Well, God gave me the ability to continue to be alive. God gave me the arms that allow me to do my job. God gave me the brain that allowed me to get through college in no less than seven years and, and to be able to get a degree that I'm not using, um, but I've got a job now where I use that brain that God gave me, with the body that God gave me. I'm breathing because God's allowing me to breathe. Okay, so we, we can kind of back it all up and go, okay, yeah, everything I have is from God. And I, th I think I've told you this one before, but I had a, a pastor, my old pastor used to say, if you think you own anything, tell God he can't have it. <laughs> I just go, God, this Jeep, it's mine. You can't have it, God. Just see how that goes. Just see what happens. See if it's still there even when you get to the parking lot, right? Like... <laughs> Okay, so there, there, there is, I think, in us, if we can put aside the fear, put aside the pride, put aside, I, I think we can all kind of rationally get back to the, to the fact that, listen, I didn't decide 
where I was born, when I was born, to whom I was born to. I didn't decide my height. I didn't decide my, my gifts. I didn't decide my intellect. I didn't decide, I really didn't decide any of it, right? If I could have, my life might look a little different, but, but I didn't get to decide any of it. So much about who we are, what we have, and what we can do is given to us by God. Therefore, if God gives it, God can take it anytime. And he often does. Just to show us who's boss. Okay, so there's this, there's this temporal nature to this deal. And yet, even though our rational minds get it, our emotions get in the way, our hopes and dreams get in the way, the fact that uh, what our rational minds know to be true is kind of scary and not really fun to think about, the fact that it's all could be gone tomorrow and, and, and there's nothing to really trust in, um, the reality is that we do still trust in it, put our hope in it, find security in it, find comfort in our bank accounts, in our homes, in our cars, in our wealth, in our talent, in our resources, all of We sleep better at night when that stuff's good. We feel confident when that stuff's going really well. We think that we we may have a a way in this world. We think we may have a future in this world when business is going well. So we get fooled, tricked, deceived, tempted over and over and over to trust in money. These, these unrighteous rich people had been tempted, had been fooled, had been tricked, had been deceived into thinking that making money was the most ultimate end of their work. Right? That, that, that's an interesting idea. To ask the question of yourself, why do I work? What is the ultimate end of my work? Why do I wake up at 6 o'clock in the morning or 5 o'clock in the morning every day, go and spend 10 hours a day in doing this business and come home, only get an hour or two with my kids, go to sleep, wake up and do it over and over and over and over and over and over and over. Why do I do that? Is it to make money? Is it to glorify God? Right? The, the good Christian answer, I think, a lot of times is to provide for my family. You are doing a fantastic job of providing for your family. In fact, way better than your family needs. We kind of hide behind that idea of, well, I I have to provide for my family. That's why I'm working 80 hours a week and I only get an hour with my kids. I never get to go to t-ball games. I never get to go to dance recitals. I'm not involved in a community. I'm not involved with my church. I don't give to my church. I'm not involved in what God's doing. I'm not generous with my neighbors because I got to provide for my family. No, you have decided that your family needs this house and these cards and this many sets of clothing and these many hundred shoes and this kind of vacation and you are providing this for your family. It's your choice. Like I said, very few of you are going, I got to work 80 hours a week so that we can eat tomorrow. Very few of us are, are, are having that conversation with our wife at night. Sweetheart, what are we going to eat tomorrow? Well, you better work 10 hours or else we won't be able to eat. I I think very, very few of us are having that conversation each and every day. It's, I've got to work 80 hours a week so that we can do Disneyland again. We've got, I've got to do 80 hours a week so that I can get that third car or the second boat or the fourth house or whatever it is. So let's, listen, none of that's bad. If you got four boats, let me borrow one. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. You go on vacations with your family, fantastic. There's nothing in and of that that is wrong. There is nothing innately evil with having a big house or four big houses or 14 big houses. There's nothing innately evil in money or the use of that money. But be honest with yourself. Be honest about what you're you're fretting about and what you're concerned about when you say, oh man, I don't know if we're going to make it. What you mean is, I don't know if we're going to be able to live the same luxurious lifestyle that we want to live. You're not dealing with, can I eat tomorrow? Can I, can I feed my family and, and give them clothes and shelter? When there is a large portion of our world who is asking that question. So let's just be honest about where we're at. 
Let's not, let's not try to hide our, our insecurities, hide our arrogance. Let's not try to hide our desire for comfort in wealth with things like, I gotta provide for my family. That's why I work 80 hours a week. Wrong. You have chosen to provide this level of luxury for your family and you are working 80 hours to sustain that level of luxury, which may or may not be bad, but let's just be honest about what it is and not pretend that it's something else. Okay? That, that's, that's how this temptation works in us. It, it makes us say crazy things that we know aren't true. It makes us do things that we know we should not be doing when we are tempted and seduced by money to trust in it for more than what it is. It's happening to these people in verse 4. It says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. Now, um, this particular application um, is for landowners and wealthy business owners who would, as I said, have um, day laborers who would depend on that daily or weekly paycheck in order to be able to feed their families. And these unrighteous rich people have been defrauding their laborers, defrauding their employees by holding back what they deserved for, for wrong reasons, for, for lies, essentially. And people were dying, as we will find out in a moment. People, these laborers were dying. Their families were dying. They were unable to feed and clothe and give shelter to their kids. These are people who actually were dealing with, can we eat tomorrow, honey? Well, only if my boss will pay me for the work I've done. Okay, so that's an application that I'm going to assume most of you aren't dealing with. Man, I hope most of you are not dealing with the conviction of not paying your employees and defrauding them out of money. Though, it wouldn't surprise me if some of you were. That, that, that's not as far-fetched as it may seem. Okay. But there are, there are all kinds of implications. I mean, this is, this is just one implication of, of money taking root in these people's heart to the degree that it would cause them to do a lot of sinful things. Okay, this gets back to Paul in 1 Timothy 6.10 and what is, I think, the most oft-misquoted verse in the whole Bible, right? Money is the root of all evil. Right. 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's not money in and of itself is the root of all evil. It's the love of money, the desire for money, the pursuit of money as an end that is the beginning of the root of all kinds of different evils. All kinds of different things. We see some of those implications here. Um, masters defrauding their servants. There are a couple other implications that I think money tempts us to when we let it get in on our hearts. And I want to talk about three of them. Um, money tempts us to gain or keep wealth through injustice. So sometimes it's defrauding our employees. Sometimes it's tax evasion. Sometimes it's poor work conditions. Substandard pay shady deals, bad or cheap products that we sell, cutting corners in our work, laziness, neglecting your family, your church, and your God. Money tempts us to do those things. Money, when it is the end and not glorifying God, providing for our family, whatever, whatever the case may be, when money is the end, to gain more and to keep what we have, when that becomes our end, money just begins to tempt us. And he goes, look, there's five digits now. You can rest easy. Soon, though, there will be six. And if, you're, if there's six, then, then you can really breathe deeply. Man, when, when you have saved two months, three months, four months worth of wages, then you'll be secure. And money always wants a little more. It always wants a little more. It always wants a little more. And when money becomes the most ultimate thing that our heart desires, we start to go, well, Money's most ultimate, so um, my family is second, so they can be sacrificed. Money is most ultimate, so um, 
God is not, and so God can be sacrificed. Church can be sacrificed. Um, My ethics can be sacrificed. My employees can be sacrificed. My customers, my products can be sacrificed because if I make cheaper products and sell them at the same price, I'll make more money, and that's what's most ultimate. And so we cut corners. We lower our ethical standards. We stop caring for our family, our church, our friends, our God because they all keep getting in the way of making more money. Okay, so money tempts us to gain and keep wealth through injustice. Number two, money tempts us to live luxuriously while the poor suffer and die. Now, um, let me speak honestly for a minute, though that sometimes gets me in trouble. Um, I tire of the commercials that are just sob story after sob story after sob story. And by the end, I feel like a bad human being for being born in America. I tire of those commercials that show the poor all over the world that are dying and suffering and make it feel like I owe them something. Let me, let me be clear. You don't owe the poor anything. The poor are not innately deserving of your money. They are not. But you owe God everything. Everything. So, so we, we aren't called to be generous because um, the people around the world um, are owed by us. We, they, they can't come calling on a debt that we owe them. We owe them no debt. We owe God everything and they happen to be his children that bear his image and likeness created molded shaped breathed life into by God himself personally uniquely creatively lovingly and so we owe God everything therefore we ought to love God's creation not because we owe them because we owe God everything okay so we We live in luxury, we live in self-indulgence, as James says, while millions starve and die. Now, I don't expect you to solve the world's poverty problems, but I expect you to do something. As as we, we see God's created people all over the world suffering and dying, I don't expect you to solve their problems, but I expect you to care God expects you to care and to do something about it. To be moved at some level for your fellow human, fellow image bearer of God that's suffering and dying around the world. Number three, money tempts us to become blind to our actual needs. C.S. Lewis once wrote, one of the great dangers of having a lot of money is that you can be quite satisfied with the kinds of happiness money can give and never realize your need for God. Uh, Money does this funny thing where it tricks us into thinking that kind of this this low-level happiness that it can provide is the most happiness we ought to dream of. That, That this level of comfort, this level of satisfaction, this level of joy that our money can bring us is the ultimate end. It's what we should strive for. It's what we should want. And there's nothing greater. There's nothing more. It kind of blinds us to what we were actually created for, which is communion with God, the joy, peace, and satisfaction that comes with relationship to God. And so uh, when, when money blinds us to what is our actual needs by, by just filling our stomach enough that we aren't starving, we miss it. I mean, the, the, first, the first step of salvation is an awareness of need. Right? It, it, it's, it's coming to an understanding revealed to us by the Holy Spirit, but it's coming to that understanding that this world that we experience and know isn't all there is to experience and know. That there's something more. There's got to be something better. That there's something about this world that's broken and incomplete and unjust. And there's, and there's got to be something more that, that I certainly cannot solve my own problems, that I, I have need. And then that need gets named, and that need is Savior, and that need is Messiah, that need is Lord and God. But that first step is acknowledging need. And what money can do is it can kind of blind us to our need by filling our stomachs just enough to where we're not starving. And we don't, we don't realize the depth 
of our need. That's why Jesus said it's harder for a camel, harder, I messed this up in the first one too. It's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And, 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 I, and I think that's true. I think it's first really hard for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. Haven't tried it, but I'm going to assume that's hard. But the reality is that a, a, a rich person entering the kingdom of God is even harder because we don't even see that we have a need to enter into the kingdom of God because we kind of like our kingdom. And if there is no awareness of need, there is no need to move. There, there, is no, there is no desire for change if we're quite satisfied with where we are today. So money can blind us and it can tempt us. And then James, in what is easily the best line in all of James, if not your entire New Testament, says this at the end of verse 5. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. James, though he is supposed to be the most practical of all the, the biblical writers and the book of James just was this practical thing about wisdom and how to live and taming the tongue and all this stuff, over and over and over and over and over goes, you got a problem out here? It's because of your heart. You can't control your tongue? It's because you can't control your heart. You, you're, you're oppressing the poor? It's because your heart is bad. You've got issues with money? It's because you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. What vivid language is that? Because listen, this, this time that we're in, I mean, there's strong eschatological overtones here going, listen, we don't know when the day is going to come. We don't know when we'll stand before God. We don't know if these are the last days. But those last days will be days of slaughter to show what you have done, to show what you have accomplished. And yet in these last days, you continue to fatten and fatten and fatten and fatten and fatten. This is your hearts are fat. They're lazy and self-indulgent and luxurious. And so that's resulted in a lazy, self-indulgent, luxurious lifestyle. So that's strong language. It's very strong language. And James kind of, kind of just leaves us with this conviction. Kind of just leaves us with this, this heavy feeling of like, okay, well, but so what? Like, what, what do we do? Because we can, we can kind of run out of here and go, okay, honey, um, we're, we're going to start to give away another 2% or we're going we're to cut back in this area or we're going to get into a community. I'm going to give of my time. I'm going to give of my resources. I'm going to give of my wealth. And we can go immediately from conviction to action and so miss the whole thing. We can, we can jump the step where conviction actually changes heart, which moves action. We can go straight from conviction to action. And what will happen is eventually the conviction will wear off or the feelings that you're feeling will wear off and so will the action. Because it's what's going on in here that drives what's going on out here. And so if you don't let the conviction take root in your heart and fundamentally believe what I have is not mine, it's from God and there's a reason and there's a purpose and there's an actual heart level change, this will not be sustainable. What's out here will not continue. So Paul gives us in 1 Timothy 6, if you'll turn there, in 1 Timothy 6, Paul gives us some practical stuff. And I want to end with this. First Timothy 6, starting in verse 6. It says, Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Think about that statement. Paul just said, if we could just get food and close, we'll be content with that. that. That is one of the more challenging statements in all of Scripture. Because he doesn't even mention shelter. He doesn't even mention a house, or a hut, or a lean-to, or a piece of cardboard. Nothing. 
He just said, if I, if I could, if I could just have food and clothes, I could be content with that. We struggle to find contentment in our 3,000 square foot houses, multiple cars, hundreds of pairs of clothes, vacations, all the all, eating out all the time. We can't find contentment in that. Paul goes, just, just give me clothes and food and I'll be all right. Horribly challenging. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. There's four things I think First Timothy teaches us that we ought to do to beat this money-driven heart disease. Number one, know and actually be convinced of and aware of where our money comes from. Not only just to, in those moments of rational thought to go, okay, yeah, no, I think God owns it all, has given it all, can take it all away, but to actually own that in our hearts, in our day-to-day, when we use our money, when we get our money, actually knowing experientially that it's not ours, that God has given it to us, and number two, that we know why he gives it to us. That God gives us. I mean, this, this goes back to, to Genesis 12. God coming to Abraham and going, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing. That, that we are given resources by God. That we are blessed by God so that we can be a blessing. So God gives you money. God gives you time. God gives you talent. God gives you all your resources to enjoy. We just read that in 1 Timothy 6. Enjoy. There, there's, and that's why I've said this over and over. It's not wrong to have a nice house. It's not wrong to have cars. It's not wrong to go on vacation. It's not wrong to give your kids a, a, a great lifestyle. There's nothing wrong with that. Enjoy it. But also be generous with it. Be wise with it. Care for your family with it. Use it for God's ends. Use it to glorify Him. Number three. Be generous. Be generous. Generous isn't, okay, I'm going to do 10% because um, the pastor keeps guilting me in and keeps mentioning 10%, so I'm going to do 10%. That's not generous. That's legalistic. That's religious. Generous is going, all right, this is how much I'm giving now. How can I give more? And then, and then again going, okay, now how can I give more? Not just to the church, just giving it away, your time, your energy, your talent, your money, all of it. Just going, how can I give more? Every December, my wife and I have this conversation where we're looking at our, our next year's budget. We go, okay, how can we give more? 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 Just more. Just whatever that is. There's, no, there's not a percentage. It's just more. And then tomorrow, more. And the next week, more. And the next year, more. There's no end to what God calls from us. It's just more and more and more giving over of our hearts and minds to God. And then lastly, and this is the most difficult, to find contentment. To just somehow lose that heart desire to to have more instead of give more. To to somehow, by by God's grace, through the work of the Spirit in our hearts, to shed that desire to, to want more and better in our lives. To just be content. To be able to look around at our world and go, This is good. My life is good. God has blessed me tremendously. I don't need more. I I don't even necessarily want more. If God brings me more, praise Him. But I I don't need more. I'm content. Maybe maybe we could make it as a goal to to be able to, to echo Paul's words and go, give me food and clothes and I'll be content. To really find contentment where we are. Lastly, in... The last verse of James 5, verse 6. 
we get some pretty strong Christological overtones here. As he says, you have condemned, you have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. I can't help but think of Isaiah, the sheep who before his shearers was silent. I can't help but think of Jesus on his way to the cross, not rebelling, not fighting, not calling down legions of angels from heaven, but succumbing to what was before him. Jesus, the the only purely righteous rich and righteous poor. The one who had everything, worshipped 24 hours a day, seven days a week, on high. Angels seen, glory, 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 Lord God Almighty. Though he was rich, he gave it all up. Gave up everything. And then when he became poor, he gave even more. And went to the cross and gave it all. He is not only our example for what generosity is, that the rich became poor and then the poor gave more. Not only our example, but the means by which we would follow in his footsteps. That his sacrifice on the cross is the grace that we lean into. These moments when we, when we feel our heart try to grip on that money and those moments where we don't want to be generous and those moments that we would think on the cross, we would meditate on what Christ has done thinking and praying, saying, God, by your grace, may I follow in your footsteps and be as generous with the people around me as you were generous with those who were rebellious against you. Um, As you know, the last couple of months have been, um, our world has seen great tragedy, earthquake in Japan specifically, and the the tsunami and, and flooding that was a result of that. And um, the death count is, I believe, still rising and in thousands and thousands. Um, many of you have been asking how, how we can help and how, what we can do. And um, we as a leadership team have been really picky about how we could help, um, how we can get involved because um, tragedies like this um, provide a lot of opportunities to waste money. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of people trying to do good things in, in, in these times that end up being more of a waste and a real inefficient use of resources. And so we've been really trying to find something that, that we felt like could be helpful. And just on Friday, um, we were made aware of an organization that is in Japan, a local organization called Friends with the Voiceless. Um, they're an organization who has partnered extensively with Disciple the Nations Alliance, whom we have worked with a lot, and Food for the Hungry. Um, and they are a local organization led by Japanese people. And what they do is they resource and connect local Japanese Christian churches. So um, they, they disciple pastors, resource pastors, connect them specifically in, in times of need like this. And so um, we felt like this was the perfect kind of organization to get involved with because they will be empowering pastors and local churches to care for those people. So at the end of the day, God gets the glory and the local churches there get to be the heroes. So we think that's a good thing. And so um, they have a multi-phase plan as to how they can help. In the first phase, they are kicking off... Um, they need to raise $37,000 to be able to get phase one going. And so all of Redemption Church, all four campuses at all of our services um, will be making this need known. And I think um, that Redemption Church can make a big dent in that $37,000, if not take care of the whole thing today. Um, And so um, we are going to have an offering for that. So on your way out, the offering boxes that you would normally give to, if you write a check, just put in the memo, Japan offering or um, friends with the voiceless, and that will go towards them. This is in addition to our, our normal offerings is over and above. This is a moment of generosity. Okay. And this opportunity came on Friday. So, um, you know, the earthquake happened when it happened. We just happened to be preaching this message. I didn't make the earthquake happen for an illustration for this message. All right. This is an opportunity for us to live this out. It's an opportunity for us to put our, literally put our money where our mouth is. So um, let's do that and let's pray.